All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of the podcast. Today we are speaking with author and farmer Brian Miller in East Tennessee, and we're going to talk a lot about his newly published book called Kayaking with Lambs, which is a really great read. I just finished it this morning. We're going to dive into that. Uh, but I thought as a starting point for our conversation, um, Brian, you just returned from the Front Porch Republic conference. And my understanding was that was the first time that you'd been to that conference. And I'm just wondering, and I've never been, I don't think Jason's ever been, although I look at their, I read stuff on their website from time to time. So I'm familiar with this. Uh, and I think a lot of DO people will be familiar with Front Porch Republic. But I don't know if you have any like salient experiences, takeaways, memorable moments, insights, or other impressions you'd like to share with uh, from the from the Front Porch Republic Conference? Well, first, yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you guys. Um, I, uh, yeah, there was probably a certain sense of obligation on my part since they just published my book to go to the uh, to the conference. I had intended to go a couple of years ago when they did it in Louisville with uh, Wendell Berry uh, was going to be there. Uh, but, uh, so I managed to finally make it up there. Uh, it's an interesting format. It's, uh, it's probably, uh, a bit more academic than is my typical, uh, um, kind of group of farmers I hang out with, uh, though I hang out with some fairly well-educated people. They're just not, uh, as academic as a lot of the, uh, front porch Republic, uh, crowd comes across, uh, that's not a negative. That's just uh, kind of who they are and where they come from. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's a long day of listening to a lot of different uh, lectures, a lot of people with some very interesting perspectives. Uh, Ashley uh, from the Doomer Optimism gave a nice presentation uh, in the uh, late afternoon. And uh, I've had kind of corresponded uh, with Paul Kings North over the years, going way back uh uh, probably to the Dark Mountain days. And so it was kind of nice to meet him in person and listen to him uh, uh, talk. Uh, uh, as always, at most of these events, the best uh, moment of the time is when you break and you all go to the pub and you hang out and, and drink beer and chat with each other. And it's a lot more relaxed then. So uh, so I'd say it's uh, Front Porch Republic's well worth going to. Uh, I would hope they would introduce more moments where you can just kind of hang out with each other and chat and make those kind of connections. Nice. Um, yeah, well, why don't we get into a little bit of your background and history um, leading up to writing, wanting to write, write this book about kind of, you know, it's a very, it's a very, um, uh, poetic book about kind of the first person kind of snapshot of different kind of experiences throughout the days, weeks, months, years, uh, coupled, you know, of, you know, walking through the field and, you know, uh, observing kind of the, the wind and the, 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 the mist and the, the sounds, soundscape, uh, coupled with kind of observations about society kind of very subtly woven, which is, which is, um, which I, I really like that style. But why don't you talk a little bit about what what got you into farming? Were you did you grow up farming, and and what what kind of set this kind of I don't know if mission is the right word, but the trajectory of your life. Uh, yeah, good question. Hard to distill it down into uh, something that seems manageable. Uh, 
you know, I will say that a lot of us, uh, you know, we think we're doing something on our own, out of our own impulse uh, yeah. in life. And then once you get into it, you realize that it's part of a larger movement. You know, it's in the zeitgeist. People are uh, wanting to to get back to the land or simplify their lives. Um, I had spent, uh, I grew up in South Louisiana and that kind of comes through in the book. Uh, I talk a lot about uh, my family and where I grew up there. Uh, but uh, probably in my 20s, I spent a long time in the uh, anarchist movement. And, uh, and I still feel large kinship with the ideas of the anarchist movement, but I was became dissolution with the ideological component of it. And particularly as it kind of moved away from the uh, class struggle aspects uh, mm -hmm. that attracted me to it, more towards the identity politics uh, that we see today that, that kind of has uh, uh, poison the landscape, uh, in my opinion. I had uh, was part of a collective that ran a bookstore in Knoxville. Then I had my own bookstore on the town square uh, for a number of years and have always worked around books. And it was just kind of a process of feeling disconnected with the community at large um, and just Getting to the point, uh, Cindy and I had restored an old Victorian home in Knoxville and we kind of felt like we had achieved everything we wanted there. And one day I just said, you know, let's go find some land. And that's what we did. It took us a few years. Uh, we pretty much had to learn as we went. Cindy had some background in farming, but I didn't. Uh, I have some grandparents who had a farm, uh, but uh, I had no experience on that farm. And uh, that's, uh, I think a lot of it was kind of trying to learn how to be uh, a citizen again or uh, connected with the community that I felt very estranged from. Uh, does any of that resonate? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you're speaking to the, I think, a generation, I think we're just a bit younger than you, um, that many of us are pretty placeless. Uh, I've moved around. I was thinking recently that my grandparents didn't end up living where they grew up. Uh, my parents didn't end up living where they grew up. They don't live where I grew up now. And I've lived in four different states. And I'm hoping to kind of stop and raise my family here and be here for the long run. But um, that was very normal uh, to have upward mobility and go somewhere else. And only later in my 30s realizing wow, this, there's a lot of emptiness um, to kind of this lifestyle and I can't really pin it down. And, and then one day uh, or one, you know, uh, time period, it occurred to me that I need to be connected to the land again. And, and this is kind of key to, to many of the social, political, environmental issues that um, yeah, I've been concerned with anyway. So it definitely resonates with me. Yeah, that's good. And about, well, about you, Josh, you're from, you're, you're kind of, from general the region that that you grew up in you know stayed over but uh i'm curious that's your experience as well josh i'm lucky that i've been able to like live in different worlds and kind of take some from each you know i i grew up in in a really economically devastated town in west virginia and left home at 18 to go to college it was shoved out of the house by my parents you know i mean i had to leave 
I didn't really want to go to college, but they said, you know, they certainly weren't going to let me stay there. And so then I, I made the whole circuitous route through college and grad school and living in various places, getting involved in international work and living around the world. And, you know, only recently kind of came back home. So I'm, I'm kind of a local, but that said, like, I'm not that far, really, uh, you know, half a day's drive from where I grew up. But we also live in a place where you can be one valley over and you're an outsider, you know. So um, I would say I've kind of equally not fit in everywhere I've been. Um, but I'm always on that quest to to feel a little bit more in my element. And I got to say, you know, I've spent a ton of time in academia and at different universities and in professional conference settings and stuff like that. And whenever I'm on a college campus, I have the persistent feeling that I'm behind enemy lines, you know, and that I'm going to be found out any minute <laughs> and they're going to chase me out of there. Um, so, yeah, that discomfort has really never gone away, despite a lot of years being there. Um, we're kind of already digging into some themes of the book, which I think is totally fine. And to me, this you talk you mentioned in, in different spots, these concepts of the anywheres and the somewheres. You know, and I think this conversation is a real anywhere, somewhere dichotomy. That's what we're sort of orbiting around. So do you want to go into that in a little bit more deal and flesh out this idea of the anywheres and somewheres and how you approach it? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I come from a fairly rooted background, although I moved around a lot. Uh, so, you know, Jason, what you're saying resonates with me, too. You know, I left kind of a place uh, in Louisiana that my family had been there for 250 years. And, uh, and although the family had moved around within the area, you know, it was definitely a place you felt certain kinship for. Uh, and, uh, and then I remember going home about, uh, uh, maybe 20 years after I had left and I, couldn't recognize any of the physical landmarks anymore. There had been so much development. I know each of us has had that experience where, you know, what used to be a field or woods was now a Walmart uh, parking lot. And as I traveled with my job, I worked for a bookstore company. You know, I just saw the same landscape everywhere in this country. And, uh, and it's disappointing. That's the anywhere where every place looks identical. And the somewhere of feeling like you're part of something that is unique and has roots. I mean, that's the thing that all of us in this deracinated world we live in just, and I guess that's the right word, feel like we uh, are searching for. And so, again, getting back to the original question of us deciding to move to the country and kind of thinking it was our own idea. You're really part of this kind of these larger trends, but it's that moving to the country and, and, and feeling, a, wanting to feel a certain kind of competency over my life uh, and something that I didn't feel with the job that I had uh, or where I was living in town. Um, have I gotten off the topic there? No, I think you're good. I think you're good. It's um, um, a follow-up question I have to what you said about this idea that we are all, there's this, this kind of rootedness that we're all looking for. 
and I would, I agree. I feel that sentiment. The question that I have is the extent, like, is it really like that we're all looking for this? And where I'm going with this is I want to, I want to, I want to provide a quote uh, as a kind of a foil to, to bounce off of, to talk about some of the themes in your book and to set up, to set up where this comes from. Um, there's an analyst that I like to listen to on podcasts and read his writings, and we should try to get him on if we can, as Art Berman. He's a geologist. He writes a lot about issues of energy and economy and stuff like that. You guys might be familiar with some of his work. He's, I think he's really, really good. He's a really very, very clear speaker, and you know, he doesn't pull any punches. He goes right to the point. Um, and of course, and, and he talks a lot about energy constraints and about the limitations of like renewable energy form, like the idea that we can just run our society as is and continue growing forever, but do it with green energy, you know, is not really a scientifically sound concept. And so he gives talks and, and, and explains this kind of thing. And often at universities and stuff like that. And he meets with the kind of pushback that you would expect where, he, you know, people that have been from our culture, it's, it's real weird to think about these kind of limits and stuff like that. Well, he doesn't really hold back. He kind of lets the audience have it. And um, the quote that I want to read is, I listened to a podcast where he gave a talk, I believe at the University of Texas in Austin, about the limits of, of nuclear and other alternative energy forms to, you know, to solve all our problems. And then, um, and I heard, I heard this, and then he wrote a little article about it later. The first question, I'm going to actually read you the text of the first question or the first comment after he finished his talk about about energy limitations. Um, so uh, uh, it was a, a woman that made the comment. I, I assume she was a professor. I don't, I can't say for sure, but the first, okay. So it goes like this. The first question began with a statement. A one child policy is something we should all be espousing and allowing people to take their lives after age 60, if they want, without ruling it suicide. Things like that should absolutely be in the policy list. So, so, so one of responses to recognizing environmental limits or environmental calamities is to go to this place of, I mean, to me, it seems very death oriented. Have fewer children or have no children, have it in policies to hold people back from having children. And we need to transition to a culture where we consider it to be an acceptable or even encouraged thing that once people become 60 years or older, you know, we kind of, you know, hey, maybe you think about, you know, killing yourself now, you know? Um, and to me, that seems like that's really doomer to me. You know, that's like a big spiritual doomer to me to think about that. Uh, you know, when traditionally old people have been revered because they've been around for a long time, they have a lot of experience, they have stories to tell. And you highlight in your book, like, I mean, storytelling and older relatives, I mean, that's a major, major important theme of the kind of spiritual dimension of your book. So I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to read that quote and pose it to both you guys and get your reaction to see if you had a same kind of like heart hurting reaction to that as I did. And then, you know, to quickly move past the, that, that doomerism and into like, well, let's like embrace life, let's affirm life and let's talk about how this agrarian vision that you're describing can be more life affirming than that sort of, I would say nihilism, you know, or something of just ending life, you know? Hmm. 
Well, I would just say on a very practical level, it's it's dumb uh, because I don't think we'll have nearly as much cheap energy availability in the future, which will mean much more labor intensive processes, especially with regards to agriculture. And so we're going to need young people, um, maybe not 10 kids per person, but we're going to need young people who will be helping out. Uh, and we're going to need the wisdom of the elders uh, and that interplay of the elders teaching the young people and having that special relationship. Um, so I think the future that we're heading into, which will be more, have to be more rooted uh, necessarily, I think, um, without young people and the elders, I don't think we have a chance. So I, I think just on a very practical level, it's dumb. But on a spiritual level, I think it's catastrophic. I think it's, you know, uh, dystopian, you know, you could the sci-fi dystopian movies of the 60s and 70s and 80s or whatever. Um, it would fit right in there like a glove. So, yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think th that that kind of mindset can co only come out of um, a disembodied, unrooted kind of technocratic solutionism of how, how do we solve problems with a spreadsheet? And, oh, if we just chop off the ends here, then we'll be good. Um, you know, I, I just think it's very, very, you know, uh, a horrible, <laughs> a horrible idea and spiritually, spiritually very um, unhealthy to even think, think in those terms. Well, I would uh, say ditto, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Chris Mage talks a lot about, you know, the need to uh, get, uh, get young people back onto the land uh, mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, in his his writings uh and one of the things i you know we moved onto the land here when i was 37 so uh, you know one of the things that i had to relearn and this is just on a personal note one of the things i had to relearn was that it's okay to be ignorant and not know the answers to things and i think that's that's one of the things i see with kind of the a lot of people who want to come back to the land that have a lot of people host a lot of people on the, on the farm is they they they've watched too many youtube videos of different people whether it's joel salatin which is nothing against joel salatin but they have a very specific idea of, of how they're going to do it and they're going to do it better than anybody that's around them mm -hmm. and so one of the things that i had to learn here was to uh ask the old farmer across the fence you know what he did and what he suggested didn't mean I had to follow everything but these are people who've been living in this valley dealing with the weather and the climate of this valley and they know what their land can handle and what it can't handle and so the idea that we would start lopping off uh anybody over <laughs> over that age i feel the same kind of spiritual hurt there that josh expressed of course, the fact that I'm also 61, you know, I, I'd at least like to push that time frame out a little bit. But uh, but yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's a, a good uh, quote to have out there. But I think it's something we can probably all agree is uh, is a bit absurd. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, maybe Jason Connor and touched on that. I was just like, like, where does that kind of sentiment come from? You know, um, the thing that it, the, the thing that it makes me think is it's such a bummer. 
I mean, I feel like I'm not super worried because I don't think that people offering ideas like that are going to be very successful because it's just such a bummer. It's such a downer. It's so unattractive. Now, the flip side of that, the flip side of that, I was having another conversation with a friend recently about, you know, moving to the country and raising chickens and growing vegetables and all this kind of stuff. And her comment was like, oh, you know, I'm doing it, but it's also very middle class and selfish for me to be able to do something like this. And it's all just about me and stuff. And, you know, and my point of view is that, I mean, one reason I love your book so much is because there's so much I can resonate with. I mean, you know, we've been here for going on four years and with on a regular basis, I go out in the evenings to do the rounds and I'm just walking across the field. I see a beautiful sunset. I see the sheep come running up when I go up the hill and it's like on a regular basis, I look around, I go, I am so glad that I live here. So there's this huge selfish component that's like, you know, this is extremely rewarding, right? Oh, okay. You could say that's selfish, but that's the incentive to me that's going to make it attractive to other people. You know what I'm saying? Like the selfishness and the altruism are going together because if you want somebody to undertake some kind of, you know, something that's arduous and frustrating at times and uncertain and risky and involves really a lot of unpleasant activities, a lot of the time, like you detail in your book, well, you've got to have something to draw them in and make them believe that it's worthwhile, you know? So can you riff a little bit on some of this, you know, maybe this sort of dichotomy of, oh, you're just doing some selfish thing that well-off people can do for fun. Or like you highlight in the book um, that the term hobby farm is a slur. Explain right. what you mean by hobby farm being a slur. Well, a hobby seems to imply it's it's something that is a, a, is a choice of that's not necessarily needed in your life. It's just something that you're, that you're doing just for the fun of it. And that seems very middle-class uh, to me. Uh, you know, we've always tried to make our farm pay. Uh, and, uh, and almost from the very beginning, you know, we raised, raised cattle and, and sold cattle so that we could pay our mortgage. But, you know, the early years, you know, we're both making in the low 30,000s, you know, the early years, every paycheck was, do we buy a hammer? Do we buy a rock bar? Do we buy a postal? You know, and so everything we've done on the farm is to try to try to make uh, make it pay for itself. But the farm was not ever just about. Uh, just the raising of the chickens, it was meant to be a way to re-engage with uh, for me, it was meant, I can't speak for Cindy, but it was meant for a way for me to re-engage with just life and my family and, uh, the culture that I was raised with. And, and along that way, you know, just by trying to be open to it, the things that you're talking about that you, that you kindly reference in my book is that new appreciation for just the rhythms of life. And I really try to step back and not make any grand prescriptions for other people or even about the larger world we're living in, because those issues now just seem so out of control uh, uh, for us on so many levels. But I can just say, you know, that a purpose-led life is a good life 
and you know just trying whether it's done out on the land or you know within a neighborhood but trying to step out of, outside this hamster wheel modernity that's just kind of uh with the technology and and the digital life uh just seems so unreal to most of what i do on a daily basis and i love that Yeah, and you describe it well in your book. By the way, I don't know if we've mentioned the title of your book, Kayaking with Lambs, or as Josh, you said, what is it? Uh, humor Lamb or something? What, what, what was your... <laughs> anyway. Um, Brian, Brian, I think Brian... Doomering with, lambs. Do, doomering with Lambs, and then I shortened it to Lamb of Doom because I thought that sounded like a cool name for a metal band or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So kayaking with lambs, um, and I haven't read the whole thing. I've only read the first couple of chapters. Um, I'm going to read it through the end because I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I, I find that it's, you know, it definitely, in terms of the tradition, um, I can't help but think of Wendell Berry's writing and how he evokes his kind of sense of being in place and weaving that in with kind of like subtly with kind of broader kind of societal diagnoses, but really grounding it in you know, just, just describing what it's like to be in a place and the rhythms of, of life and, and, and being connected with the land. Uh, and of course, you know, Barry's seminal work, uh, Unsettling of America, came out in the 70s. That's been very influential for a lot of us, I think. Um, and, you know, arguably things have gone, gone worse since then in terms of the rise of industrial ag, you know, further, I would say, unsustainable urbanization. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, the influence that Barry's writing has had on your work and how you see your work uh, in that tradition, given kind of the modern context and, you know, uh, you know, given the fact that Barry's been writing about this stuff for decades and, you know, none of the people who wield power in American politics have listened or anything of that nature. So, like, do, do you see your, your work is kind of uh kind of uh, another voice in the wilderness that's kind of carrying on this knowledge for you know maybe that will never be realized or like how do you how do you see your work in that tradition and get given where society has gone is that, that does that question make sense sure sure um as far as my connection with barry i have to say that i had not read a lot of barry before we came out to this farm i had a uh I picked up a remainder copy of his uh, poetry, mm -hmm. his Sabbath poems. And I had bought from a buddy of mine who ran a rare book business in Knoxville, uh, a poster of the Mad Farmer's Liberation mm -hmm. uh, movie. Yeah. I always loved that, uh, that poem. Uh, so I gradually, as I adopted this life mm -hmm. and grew into this life, read more Barry. And uh, and I'm sure it's had a profound influence on the way I, you know, communicate or write. Um, but early on, you know, I probably came from a more selfish viewpoint of just, you know, realizing, just sensing that something was out of balance in our lives and wanting to to try something new. And, and the idea of farming had always appealed to me. Um, but... Uh, but I would say also, again, I can't speak for Barry, but I would say, you know, 
he's also not one to give grand prescriptions either about things. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think about this life, if you embrace it, and not just the technical aspects of farming, but just embrace being on the land. It begins, and this is what I wanted it to do, it begins to shape you in ways that start to surprise you. And you, I find myself less angry than I used to be about things that I had no reason to be angry about because they were outside of my control. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, the type of person who meditates. I'm not particularly religious, uh, but uh, but taking care of the land, taking care of animals, learning to husband animals, mm -hmm. having to kill animals to be responsible for them to go to slaughter or to put one down that is is uh, uh, injured. Uh, you know, has a profound impact on you if you're uh, being thoughtful about the decisions you're making. Mm -hmm. Did that uh, come anywhere close, uh, Jason, to, to what yeah. you were yeah. asking me? Right. Well, I guess the the second part of my question there, and maybe, maybe it's not, you know, a good question to even ask or try and answer of, you know, is there a certain, I guess if we're looking at the doomer aspect of things and the fact that Barry's been writing about this since the 60s and 70s um, and the issue has just gotten worse, you know, and then now, now in our experience, I guess, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm only on five acres of land. I'm, I'm you know, got here a few years ago and, and kind of I see, I have to think very locally in order to feel like I have hope, you know, besides building up the doomer optimism network, which has its own sort of hope, but uh, very tangibly, it's like, okay, like I can, I can see about um, being a responsible steward and community member and helping, you know, helping develop this community in a positive direction with, men, with the many resources that already exist, uh, cultural resources. Uh, I can see that on like a county scale, but I can't really see that uh, much further. Um, so I, I guess the question is, you know, are we all kind of entering into this for our personal spiritual reasons and writing about it in order to kind of find the others, but without much hope that it'll have a broader societal implications? Or are, are we in a position now where something's fundamentally different than, say, when Barry was writing in the 60s and 70s? And maybe, you know, maybe energy availability is going to decrease or, uh, you know, biophysical other biophysical factors are going to change or geopolitical factors are going to change where this will suddenly become a much more necessary way of living and uh these writings will be freshly relevant i don't know if i'm getting my question across i'm, I'm kind of confusing myself when i'm asking it so maybe you can sort it out then, then i'll give a confusing answer okay uh, <laughs> uh one of the things i have referenced all the time I've been writing about this is uh, that a lot of what we do, not our day-to-day -day practices on the farm, but the way we're learning to interact with people uh, is uh, kind of keeping the muscle memory of community alive. Mm. I don't know what the future holds in my darker moments. 
you know, I'm not very optimistic about about things. I think there's a lot stacked against uh, a livable planet. Uh, but I think one of the things that I can do is to embrace as many ways of working with my neighbors as I can, uh, just trying to keep up those ways of that muscle memory of, of, mm. of the action in the hopes that, you know, kind of like the Irish monks, you know, copying out, <clears throat> you know, uh, Greek and Roman documents, you know, keeping that alive for a time when they could be of use. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes, and that's an optimistic, ultimately, that's an optimistic way to, to go, go through life. You know, I am depressed about how quickly uh, the sprawl of people moving from outside has taken over our small valleys, driving up, you know, prices of land, so that people who grew up here can't afford to do what we're doing. In some ways, I understand why they move here. And I don't know what the solution is there. I am opposed to people who just move to the country and then don't want to do anything with the land. You know, they kind of swallow up five, 10, 100 acres of land, put their house in the middle of it, and then you never see them outside. You know, maybe they've got horses or something like that, but I don't know what the answer is, but I hate to see productive land taken out of use. And I say productive, I should put that in air quotes here because I live in East Tennessee, just like you guys live in Western North Carolina. It's not the richest land, you know, around, um, but it can be productive. Um, one of the things that I... I've really grown to appreciate uh, where we live is watching how people are still very competent about doing hands-on things in rural areas. Mm -hmm. I worked in the book business for about 30 years and I gradually saw men kind of withdraw from wanting to be active and engaged in their in their lives um and i say that as a guy i, I i'm around plenty of competent women but uh but seeing young men and boys not competent at doing anything and lacking confidence in doing anything i don't see that in a rural area uh you know, we've had a whole host of farm kids working on the farm I've got neighbors, young people in their 30s as well, who also kind of do what we do. They, they work full time, but they also run a homestead operation as well as uh, you know, raising cattle or sheep for mar local markets and stuff. And they're just competent in so many mechanical and uh, ways that I just see lacking in the rest of society. So that gives me hope. That's kind of the Chris Smade thing. If people kind of flow back into the countryside and become uh, try to be uh, productive there, then they, we can reawaken some of those uh, skills that are needed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to, um, <clears throat> while we're on this topic, I want to ask you if you've got any anecdotes or, or I don't know, illustrative examples or cautionary tales or whatever in the vein of this, the sort of clash of civilizations that happens when 
you know, city people show up in the country and interact with the locals. Um, I don't know if you have any funny stories or particularly egregious stories or, you know, teachable moment stories or anything like that you want to share about the challenges faced when you blend these groups from society. And, and if you have any advice about um, harmonizing things. Well, I think part of the problem that we are facing right now is people are moving in in such large quantities that uh, they're not, they seem to be not interested in merging within the community. And that's disruptive on a whole lot of things. And I, I don't know what the solution is there. I see, uh, you know, as a Southerner and as someone with long roots in the South, I, you know, got my antennae up when you know, the new person from New York or California starts denigrating the people who live around me. And I see that a lot. Uh, I think I relate maybe even in the book, I was talking with a woman who was just going on about how stupid people were around her and just, you know, about, you know, uh, toothless, you know, Southerners and just this going on and on and on. And, and eventually I said, you know, you do know I'm from the South. And she said what I knew she was going to say, because I've heard it a thousand times. She goes, oh, but you're smart. <laughs> just, you know, it was, I didn't even know where to start, how to combat that kind of uh, prejudice there. And I think that's the thing I, that I see a lot as uh, a lot of people who are just so intensely prejudiced. And I think, you know, the, the Southerners are kind of like the last uh, group of people in this country you can really just rag on and run down with nobody to defend. Uh, so it's not really a particularly funny story, Josh, but uh, <laughs> that's the one I got for you. I thought you might have some funny or cheerful or or, or something. Um, yeah, that, I mean, I, I saw that anecdote in there. That's, I mean, I don't know. I definitely am triggered by that stuff. That makes me so mad. Yeah. And especially when I know, I, I get, I do some working class work, really blue collar work part time and spend time around, you know, people that have, of course, never been to college, probably never finished high school. And without romanticizing it, you know, there's that that physical competence is there. Not in everybody. There's some dumbasses out there, that's for sure. And you try to avoid them on a job site because you're probably going to get hurt when they do something wrong. Yeah. But that, the whole like, yeah. And I've like, you know, I've spent so much <laughs> universities and cities and stuff too. And I, I have like, there's like the what I call my urban PhD friends, you know. And to be honest, so tell me what you think about this. Like <clears throat> my my sort of anecdotal observation is. Um, you mentioned how deranged things have become in terms of politics, geopolitics, all this kind of stuff, right? And with social media and censorship and the COVID pandemic and how the authorities dealt with the COVID pandemic and propaganda pushing us into various wars and all this kind of stuff. Anecdotally, I find that my working class friends and workmates have a much more sort of basic, what I'm used to as a skepticism of authorities and, and, and distrust of the government. Whereas I feel like, especially in recent years, basically with Trump and COVID and some of these wars, I feel like my urban PhD friends are more likely to believe things that are disproven or crazy or propaganda than, you know, people that, you know, would measure lower on an IQ scale than them, but I think have a lot more grounding in the real world. And my theory is that it's easier to train a smart dog than a dumb dog. 
And that's why these, you know, dumb dog blue collar people like my background, you know, have somewhat of an inoculation against uh, sophisticated sounding propaganda. But what, what would you say about that? Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a world turned upside down right now where, uh, you know, uh, kind of the traditional liberal left uh, community, you know, that you find more in the uh, uh, universities and the uh, cities seem the uh, uh, less accepting uh, crowd in some ways. And, uh, and it's just a, it's just a very odd thing to see. But I've got I've got plenty of friends like kind of you described where, you know, there are so many third rails. I never know where to step when I'm I'm around. And, uh, you know, I find myself fairly centrist in a lot of ways uh, these days. But, uh, you know, if you're to say anything about uh, one of their cherished uh, uh, projects in any slightly skeptical way or how you could possibly see why someone would believe something different, you know, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a Katie bar of the door moment because, uh, you know, they're, they can't accept that. Now, back to the, uh, I did think of one, one good anecdote, if you don't mind me sharing that. We had a neighbor, uh, uh, they've since divorced and left, but they bought some property just over the hill from us. And uh, when they moved in from uh, uh, Orlando, uh, they called up uh, the uh, local uh power company to say that they needed to get their uh, septic and their water uh, hooked up from them uh, because they just bought this property. And uh, and these people are completely clueless about where they moved to. And the, the woman was just laughing. She says, well, honey, you know, the only way you can get water is to dig a well. And the only way you're going to get septic is to put a septic system in. There's nothing out there. And uh and so, so there's they, they thought they were there were just pipes to hook up to like down by the road. Exactly. That's okay. right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, you see that kind of disconnect all the time. And uh, I've got a guy, a friend of mine, he uh, he, he uh, does financial advising and he had some people from California who who moved in and, and very conservative. Uh, but it's a different kind of conservative. It's that kind of libertarian conservative. And uh, so one of the first things they were saying is. It's a great place we're moving, but we got to start getting more city services here. And uh, and that's just that's also showing a certain kind of disconnect where people move in and don't really they want to just replicate where they came from. But with a slight shift in political values, that's disrespectful, I think. Well, you mentioned this might be related and you brought this up, Josh, about the blog post. Was it the purchased life of the the aspiring young farmers who came in and bought a, a new, very expensive tractor that they had no chance of, of actually paying off uh, based on their proposed operation. Do you want to talk about that? That was a pretty, uh, I think, uh, illustrative and, and also a good story to wrap this conversation. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, we have a lot of people who call and want to do a tour of the farm. And uh, so we're pretty giving with our time. We had this young couple call who'd bought, uh, I think, 30 acres and, uh, and kind of an old house. And they're going to restore it. And the way they were talking to me, I kind of thought, well, there's some kind of kindred spirits. Uh, they're probably in their, their 30s. And uh, we came out. We're walking around the farm. I've got kind of a canned speech I do, which is basically, you know, uh, you know, 
don't spend too much money, re repair what you can, uh, grow what you want to like, what you want to eat. Uh, we, you know, you know, and uh, at some point during the conversation, I was saying, you know, you're going to need to buy a tractor for that 30 acres. You get something small, uh, something that's repairable, usually comes with some, uh, uh, if you get a used tractor, a lot of times it'll come with like a bush hog or uh, a, a disc or a harrow or something like that. And she brightly popped up at that point, said they had already bought a tractor. It was a 75 horsepower tractor, had a front end loader, a grapple, a bush hog, a disc mower, baler, you know, something that would cost about 150, 175,000. And then when they, these people left, I, I snooped and I saw what they paid for their 30 acres and it was just under a million dollars. And that just put a, just, it just put a different kind of uh, slant on, on who these people were. They could come in, suck up 30 acres of land that was marginal, not great, but something that someone local could have bought and made productive. And uh, they wanted to raise about 100 chickens a year for a local farmer's market. And so in this post you're talking about, I did the math, you know, where it was showing how much they would earn each year. And, you know, they might make about $10,000 a year if they were really uh, uh, worked hard at it. Gross, you know, the net would have been a massive deficit. And so there's a disconnect I think uh, a lot of people have. They don't, they want to come in and just purchase the life without working for it and uh uh i think that's that's probably one of the biggest challenges in these rural areas where uh where we live and particularly in uh, western north carolina which attracts a pretty high income crowd who want to come in and and buy a property and have for what 100 years uh, that's been going on there yeah so it sounds like what you're saying is that there's no there's no way around hard work and frugality and um being 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 handy uh basically right. something yes. is you have you have to you have to learn um you also mentioned so speaking of the million dollar you know semi-marginal 30 acres uh you said you listened to the the podcast with Stephen stoll uh do you have any thoughts about our discussion about land and the commons and kind of systematic dispossession of land, you know, throughout the, the centuries and, you know, what it might look like if we have, let's say we have the people with the right attitudes, not looking for the purchase life, um, either locals who don't have access to land and would like some, or people coming in who are sincere. Uh, do, do you see, do you have any kind of suggestions about, I don't know, land use policy, uh, you know, just like how do we, assuming we have the demand of people who are in it for the right reasons, you know, how would we even get all these people on the land when it's a million dollars for 30 acres? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. I don't know. I, I'm hesitant. The one thing I was a little bit uh, skeptical of uh, about his response was mm -hmm. 
and it's probably because of the background he comes from, but he was he was thinking more in terms of uh, top-down solutions. What can what kind of policies can the government implement? Now, the government can certainly implement some policies that could be beneficial to the changes we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm a little skeptical of their competency to right. do so in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just came from a, uh, a, a, a documentary the other night called Common Ground, uh, which I would not recommend seeing for a variety of reasons. But uh, but we went over to uh, a Bruderhof community nearby they're a kind of a collect the anabaptist uh, group uh that took over a, a, a community college and they live communally together uh it's not my cup of tea but i think they showed a kind of a model uh they're farming and they're doing regenerative farming uh there on this college campus uh which is a pretty vast area uh, I think there's maybe a hundred people who live there, but I think they show that there's a lot of different ways in which we can move back and be productive on the land. You can do it on a small scale basis, like uh, it sounds like the three of us are doing and working at developing your relationships with neighbors. Uh, you could do it communally. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways and back to Stephen Solo, I would rather see those responses generated from the bottom up to the top yeah yeah so the the anarchism hasn't hasn't totally been taken taken out of you what in of <laughs> or top down solutions <laughs> uh yes correct yeah has, has your anarchism because you you said you you kind of resonated with more of the class-based anarchism of say the 80s and 90s um, maybe early 2000s, uh, would you say that's been translated into this this notion of localism? Like they're, they're kind of similar in some ways and culturally they, they're kind of different, but functionally there's a lot of similarities. It, I don't know, do you see a, a connection there? Yeah, I, I, I think there definitely is. I, um, you know, I, I'm actually rereading uh, Kirkpatrick Sale's uh, Human uh, a Scale, uh, his revised book there. And, uh, and I think for me, uh, I had kind of left that anarchist thinking behind, but now approaching it from a less ideological standpoint, uh, I've also been reading, uh, Scott, uh, uh, James C. Scott. Yeah. James C. Scott. I've been reading some of his work that he did on Southeast Asia and just you know these kind of different formats for basically uh, small group uh, uh, non-authoritarian uh, modes of living. Um, from a non-ideological standpoint, you know the blinders I had as a young kid, mm-hmm. uh, and I found that more helpful uh, in seeing kind of what we're doing in on our farm and with the people we live around. Uh, just kind of basic nature of cooperation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Oh, man, I I'm so tempted to kind of dig into some of this stuff. I feel like I have a sort of similar background where I went through an anarchist phase kind of in my 20s, and it was affiliated with the bookstore. I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and, and the community I fell in with was kind of organized around the local info shop and stuff, and they would have 
reading and discussion nights and stuff like that. And um, it definitely was, it, it was definitely that, that, that prior version that was more focused on class-based stuff and <clears throat> very sort of bare bones, local do it yourself kind of stuff. And it hadn't gotten subsumed so much in the, the identity politics, culture wars and stuff like that. And I feel, I feel kind of nostalgic for that period when, you know, you could be anti-war and stuff and it wasn't, it, I don't know. It would just seem, I, I probably remember it, you know, through rose colored glasses or whatever, but I remember when it, well, I was totally naive, completely ignorant about everything. And I asked somebody, what, what, it, what does it mean? What is anarchism? And they said something like, if there's a big pothole in the street. You don't wait for the government or whatever, some corporation to come fix it. You just go out there and fill it in. And I was like, yeah, yeah, just do it. You know, so I really resonated. And so I think I think I, so Jason made a point that I had never thought of before that maybe that earlier vibe of kind of, you know, just go out and just do things yourself and don't wait to ask permission, but just do what needs to be done and work locally maybe has kind of, you know, gotten transmuted into now what's the sort of localism or bioregionalism movement or something like that. And so maybe that, maybe that is a common thread that I had never, I had never thought of before. I feel like, yeah, there's some interesting stuff we could, we could drill into there, but I, I kind of, I want to, in the midst of all this, I want to ask a practical question. Sure. In one section of your book, you have, you have a, you have a, it's like a little letter, like dear nephew, you're starting to farm. That's great. Here's a bullet list of advice of unsolicited advice or whatever. And there's some really interesting stuff in there. I wanted to zero in on one of the points that you made and it was about, and I've been meaning to write a post for my farm newsletter about this. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, but you mentioned firearms on the homestead, right? Three specifically. So I was wondering if you would elaborate what your three recommended firearms were and why you chose those. <laughs> well, um, I have uh, I have a couple of shotguns. Uh, I have uh, a twelve gauge, and uh, actually, I have three shotguns: twelve gauge, a four ten, and a twenty gauge. Um, they can all be used for self-defense. They can all be used for hunting and they can each be used to dispatch an animal uh, that's injured uh, or dispatch a skunk or a possum that's uh, breeding the hen house. You know? uh, so they're very functional. Uh, I've got a, a 30-30 uh, that I can use for deer hunting. And I also use it to put down uh, I've used it to put down a hog that uh, had broken its back out in the woods uh, that we then carried out and 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 uh, and butchered. Uh, I've got a 22 pistol and a 22 rifle, and again they serve similar functions, whether it's shooting a rat, uh, you know, or a squirrel. Uh, and then I've got a kind of a home defense pistol. But uh, that's probably way more guns than most, you know, than a lot of people have. Yet it's not as many guns and they're not the type of guns that uh, more and more people seem to want to get where they're pre preparing for some kind of uh, civil war or Armageddon of some sort. Uh, I guess my philosophy was that uh, I wanted to have some stuff for home protection but if I get to the point where, you know, 
300,000 people are marching down the interstate and want to take over my farm. Uh, <laughs> there's not much I can do about it. So that was the point behind that. Don't prepare for some kind of, you know, armed insurrection, you know. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about kind of uh, speaking of advice, um, you know, for somebody kind of getting started, say they, they come across, you know, uh, you know, some acreage and they, they want to, you know, they, they want to start farming. Perhaps they still work full time and they, they want to start kind of laying the foundation for um, making it more than a hobby farm and making it more than a homestead uh, farmstead, so to speak. Uh, besides kind of like starting, you know, not paying too much for a tractor and uh, learning how to fix things, just in terms of like kind of booting themselves up, uh, what have you learned in your experience of like, what do you focus on first? Like what's, what's the order of operations and like, what do you invest in first? What's the most essential things on a farmstead leading to say a full, full on, say regenerative uh, commercial farm or something? Yeah, what take us through some some pathways or some things to think about for for young people. I would say uh, focus on your perimeter fencing. Make sure you've got secure fencing that runs around the perimeter of your farm. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say get some chickens. You get a pretty quick return on the chickens. You don't need a lot of infrastructure there. Mm -hmm. And I would say raise a hog. It's not that difficult. You don't need a huge amount of space to raise one one hog. You start off with a animal at uh, eight weeks. That's about uh, twenty pounds, and uh, in seven months later, at nine months of age, it's going to be about three hundred twenty-five pounds. That's going to put protein in your family's freezer. That's going to take care of you for a whole year. Mm -hmm. I would start with those, but I would I would remind anybody who's thinking about this. It's all about rolling up your sleeves and it's hard physical work. Cindy and I both worked full-time jobs for most of the past 25 years. Uh, uh, I retired last year, but uh, so it's about uh, going somewhere, doing something else during the course of the day and then coming home like my young neighbors nearby, you know, uh, they come home and then they are out there till eight or nine at night milking the goats, milking the cows, bringing hay out there, putting new fencing in. They were out all weekend putting up a new roof on their, on their barn. You know, we built almost all the infrastructure on our farm. Uh, if either of you are ever this way, you want to come see it, happy to show it to you. Uh, but it's just a, it's a different mindset than I think what most people have in this world where they think that they're going to purchase, you know, and they can, but you just don't get the rewards with it. But it is it is hard work too. Yeah, yeah. All right, I got another <clears throat> prompt to think about. Um, you mentioned Cindy a, a few times in this conversation and also in the book. And um, a topic I think is really interesting is thinking about relationships between men and women, gender relationships and like, how gender relationships have played out in the industrial and post-industrial workplace where it seems like in the kind of post-industrial you know white collar workplace the goal is to erase all differences between men and women because any differences imply some form of injustice or unfairness or something like that 
Whereas in a more agrarian or homestead type situation, uh, there, in my opinion, there is a role for gender roles that doesn't imply unfairness or injustice or anything like that necessarily. Could you talk a bit about, with, maybe without going too personal, about your partnership and how that works out in terms of attending to all the responsibilities of farming and maybe observations you've made of other couples and how maybe how gender roles operate or complement agrarian activities and how that sure. contrasts with the sort of modern post-industrial workplace. Yeah, well, I think there's plenty of evidence out there that uh, the pre-industrial model of uh, the farm, domestic farm scene was was not as strictly delineated as it came to be in the industrial era, uh, where the man went off to work and the woman stayed back home and was just a, a homekeeper. And I think anybody who's worked on a farm knows, you know, if you've got the hands, you need to put them to the task that needs to get done. Uh, there is, uh, and that's one of the things I've, I've counseled people to, you know, don't get into this life if your partner is not at all interested in it, because uh, there's a lot of physical work that needs to be done. Uh, and, you know, if the other person is dragging their feet and doesn't want to do it, then, you know, you've got some, you've got a serious hurdle right off the bat. Um you know, on our farm, we both have our areas of, of expertise, you know, and it's not it's not just a domestic and an outdoor perspective. I, I mean, I happen to love to cook being from South Louisiana. So I do a lot of the cooking that we that we do in the house. Uh, and Cindy's a very skilled woodworker. So I'm very good at tearing things down, you know, and the brute force. I've got more strength than she does. So that is that's a obvious separation of the of the sexes there uh but she, you know she's got a lot of knowledge and finesse with uh with doing uh when we're doing construction projects uh that i defer to her her uh judgment so i would just you know i would say you know don't get too pigeonholed on distinctions between the sexes but recognize that some people uh you know have you know, certainly men have more physical strength uh, for certain projects. Uh, it's just uh, the great thing about the farm is intellectually, there's just so much scope to do different things. And so the challenge is trying to restrain yourself from doing too many things. You're trying to come up with the things that are functional and work for you. But there's always a chance to add new things. And, and Cindy was our beekeeper for most of the past you know, 20 plus years. And, uh, and she would enjoy getting into them, spending the time. I was there to pick up the 50 to 75 pound super full honey, you know, and move it. Uh, but, you know, she would get in there. So, so I was doing the grunt work there. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably traditionally the way most farming and rural life has worked out is, you know, people kind of follow, uh, uh, their interest and their skill level and their strength level uh, and how that shakes out, you know, of course, with raising children that, that provides a whole different element there too. But, uh, but I don't think it's as, uh, 
as sharply uh, separated as the industrial era led us to think that it should be. Yeah, on our, our place, it's interesting because uh, my wife is not as interested in the outdoor stuff, the homestead stuff, but she's getting really into pottery uh, and she's getting really good at it. And her hope is that in the next 10 years, she'll be able to quit her full-time job and just do pottery. So she's slowly building that up. And I think she can because she's, she's quite talented. Um, and then I'm thinking, well, okay, if you know if she can start bringing income from that and we can start you know, having a stand at markets and things, and then I can start slowly bringing in food items, foodstuffs, uh, you know, very small. I probably wouldn't set up a booth otherwise if it wasn't her pottery wasn't leading. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, that's an actually interesting uh, complementarity there that, you know, I wouldn't have imagined. And uh, if I was if I was just focused on, well, I'm probably going to be doing most of the farm work and maybe my kids, if they're hopefully they're interested, hopefully they'll be farm kids. Um, you know, that's that's my goal. Uh, I'll get the help there. But overall, as a household unit, it, it, it's actually all very complimentary, uh, you know, it, you know, towards it, towards itself. So that's, that's the, that's the hope, but it's something that's, you know, I, I hadn't anticipated even a year ago thinking, thinking in those terms. And, and so I guess my recommendation for my massive four years of experience of starting a homestead is, you know, be, be willing to be surprised at how interests develop and how they can, they can um, have various collaboration in the household can arise. I like that. That's good. Well, and you, Josh, uh, I want to ask because you have a kind of a complimentary as well, because Rachel, of course, is a vet um, and has been access to to get some starter animals and things. I don't know. Do you want do you want to talk at all about, you know, complimentaries you've seen uh, in your household? Yeah, I can just briefly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My wife's a veterinarian, uh, which is like, I mean. I, I'm ridiculously lucky. I don't know how in so many ways. And then the, our combination, my background is in like environmental engineering and stuff. So, you know, I could work on water systems and infrastructure and she's very good with animal health and stuff. So it's super complimentary. And, you know, we've had a number of times where it's just, we've acknowledged how, and it could be because of something good or because of something bad, but we've acknowledged how, there's no way that we could do like one of us could not do this by his or herself. Like it is, it is impossible. And the impossibility of that shows itself, you know, from time to time. So some is much bigger than, than the single part, the individual parts. I definitely feel that um, a lot in terms of her knowledge and how we're able to care for our animals and all this kind of stuff. And, and also how, you know, how do you sustain your project economically I mean, we're having to, everybody goes through this bootstrapping thing, right? Like you, you guys had all farm jobs and, you know, I do part-time work and Rachel's a vet and, you know, uh, and like we were talking earlier, prices of property are really expensive. The barriers of entry can be really challenging. So mm -hmm. like what sort of demographic of people in our society today could undertake something like this? There's the economic barriers. And then there's like, it really does. I feel like have to be a team, not, you know, there's the enthusiasm stuff, but also, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like the complementary skill sets are really necessary. And when I came across when I was asking about the sort of gender relations and stuff like that, um, 
I was thinking about some of the writings of Mary Harrington, who I don't, maybe she's been on the podcast. I don't remember, but uh, I think yeah, I was, she, yeah. And that's kind of where I got clued into these ideas that the sort of agrarian arrangement had a kind of parody between the sexes where just, and not just even between the sexes, but between the children and the old people. And that, you know, contributions were needed from everybody according to, you know, your abilities and your age and your capabilities and, and, and that sort of thing. And it took everybody working to make it work. So it was hard to imagine anyone feeling like they were not economically important to the sure. owner. And that's the truth. You know, and so, and I, and, and like with, uh, with Rachel, you know, the, the, I would say the uniqueness in my life experience of relationships is like, she is the person far more than anybody else that I've ever met that we have, we have a, a capacity for, for doing like we're a team and we set goals and we do stuff and it's very practical. I would say our struggles are more on the side of let's keep the sort of emotional in touchness going. Whereas we're just like, this needs to get built. This needs to get done. You do this, you do this. And we're mm -hmm. like, go, go, go very yes. practical all the time. And we need more balance in the sort of, hey, let's check in and talk about our feelings, which, you know, doesn't happen as much, but I just feel like I've never, <clears throat> I've never felt like that there was a disparity, any kind of a hierarchy or a disparity in our relationship. And I'm 10 years older than her and a male and all that. So, but I've never felt that I've always felt like, there's this, we have an equal need for each other or something like that. And I think it has to do with the fact that we are trying this sort of self-reliance, agrarianism, homesteading, and maybe that is connecting back to a mode of life of earlier times when nobody had a reason to doubt their economic importance to the success of the overall household. Yes. And I think that that explains the, um, it explains a lot about my particular connection with my wife. So, right. yeah. And like, and, 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 and it's hard to imagine how, I mean, if thinking about other people working in other contexts and cities and offices or whatever, how would you ever find that? Or how would you ever discover that with somebody? If you have sort of two autonomous individuals that go off to their respective screens and cubicles <clears throat> and don't, I mean, don't really feel uh, uh, that kind of interdependence. So I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> you just, yeah, you just were very eloquent in, in, uh, and, uh, uh, stating what I was, what I was stumbling around trying to say too, which I, again, I think, uh, I, I think uh, it would be very difficult in that kind of city and urban setting to try to achieve that kind of interaction that we're both discovering, you know, by working together in a homestead or on the farm. Uh, situation. Uh, when you're talking about everybody participating, I, I think about a conversation I had with my neighbor who since passed away. Um, uh, probably this conversation was 15 years ago. He passed away in his late 80s. But, you know, he talked about harnessing and using a team of horses to haul a wagon when the family was cutting hay when he was eight years old, maybe seven. And I was just thinking the level of confidence and the level of intelligence and knowledge to do that, when you try to 
find the average seven or eight year old kid today and you try to impress upon them that they're going to do something that challenging, you're not going to find them. I mean, yeah, that's an exaggeration. I'm sure they're out there, but they're not out there probably like uh, rural life used to teach kids these skills. Um, and I it's the thing that it just impresses me over and over again, living out here is just, again, that level of competency. But, uh, but I think, uh, I think people, a couple can surprise each other with the skills that they can learn to do and the ways in which you can learn to work together. I think that can, that can strengthen a relationship could probably also tear one apart, but, uh, but I definitely think it can strengthen it as well. I mean, we, uh, uh, Jason, you were asking about the things I'd recommend people do. You know, I would certainly recommend people sit down and have a regular farm meeting with their partner each week, you know, uh, just to sit down and talk about shared goals, how it's going to be done, how it's going to be paid for, you know, and I think that's that's helpful to the overall project. And just to expand this out a bit, so like we're talking about partners in a household uh, figuring themselves out and, and how they, you know, how they accomplish shared goals. Um, you know, traditionally, and it seems like what, you know, would be nice to get back to is then you start linking up with other households, other families, where you find also those shared interdependencies and complementarities. Do you want to talk about your experience of like when you were getting started farming and, and just meeting up with other, with neighbors, other farmers and, and kind of ways in which you were able to help each other out? I would say uh, two things. Uh, one, I wasn't as receptive when I moved out here. I felt like I, I needed to know everything. And uh, so I didn't ask questions of my neighbors that much. That changed within just a few years of being out here because I realized there's so much I didn't know, like uh, hooking the auger up and realizing uh, that there's not a reverse on the auger. You know, we, we drilled a hole down the augers all the way down in the ground. And then we're looking around at the piece of machinery trying to find the reverse and, and there's not one. So, you know, eventually I had this conversation with one of the old farmers nearby and he kind of clued me on how to use that piece of equipment. And that kind of set the tone for me. I started then asking questions, but uh, early on, I, I rebuilt a, a fence line up behind the house that probably runs for about a thousand feet with my neighbor uh, that I was just talking about earlier. Uh, and, uh, he was probably in his seventies at the time. And he was just, he was outworking me physically. You know, I just wasn't prepared for the kind of physical work. And I kept expecting to, to stop. And, you know, he was just continuing, you know, we were at it all day, ripping out an old fence line, pulling out posts, setting new posts, setting new T posts, putting in new fencing. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, just being, um, being prepared to, to show your ignorance and ask questions is important. Nice. But was that even close to your question? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, what If you want to expand on that, uh, anything about kind of when you started marketing your products and like what is the, I'm curious what the kind of local farmers market scene or, or how you, yeah, like how and how, how other farmers in the region like, like, how do you, how do you market your products? And, you know, is there ways that you collaborate in doing that or 
Yeah. Anything yeah. So we started, uh, we didn't predate the uh, farmer's market movement, but we started when it was still kind of in its infancy. There were some around, but not near as many as there were now. So we never, we have never sold at the farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. So uh, for income, it has always been uh, direct marketing the meat to mm -hmm. customers. And we built that customer base up, you know, strictly from, uh, uh, personal contacts early on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we probably have 150 families, uh, on our, uh, on our contact lists that buy meat from us. Not all the time. Uh, but you know, every, some people buy it once a year, some people buy something every few years. But so our model was always based on using the custom processing plants that are around us, uh, where you take a, a steer to the processor and someone buys an interest in the steer. And because they do that, they're allowed to use the custom processor and they get a quarter or a half of the steer back. Uh, mm -hmm. Same thing with hogs and same thing with sheep. So it's always been direct marketing the meat and our customer base ranges from people who live out here in the country who just don't want to raise their own, own food uh, to people who, <coughs> who live in Knoxville or Chattanooga or surrounding areas. Um, are you, uh, are you still taking new customers? Cause Jason, I was just thinking that you and I should go in together and get <coughs> half a cow or something and we can drive over there and pick it up at some point. What do you think about that? I think that sounds, that sounds good. Um, I'm starting a new job in, in, in January and I should have uh, <laughs> to work with to do something like that. But, yeah, that would be that would be a good excuse to come out as well and come yeah. out and visit your place. I think what one thing that's been nice about this podcast is we've started making contact with other people in the region, Southwest Virginia, uh, you know, Eastern Tennessee, uh, and there's still internet contacts. Um, and one thing, even in you know Kentucky with 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 Tom, and, and one thing, my my goal the next few years is just to start meeting up with these contacts and start forming more of a set of physical relationships in a, in a region, you know, a regional set of, set of relationships. So it'll be a great excuse to do that. So. That would be terrific to, to have a get together, get, get yeah. folks together and, and meet at different farms. I wish Grant Scalf, uh, who had connected me with, uh, yeah. with Josh anyway, had been able to get on the call. He's younger and been out to the farm, but he's got a nice little homestead in, in the fringes of uh, Knoxville and uh, would have a lot to add to the, this conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, we were, we connected over, over Twitter. Um, and so I was aware of him as well. So yeah, let's start, let's start realizing these, these connections. That, that sounds great. Uh, well, Josh, maybe uh, we should probably wrap it up pretty soon. Um, you want to talk about maybe let's wrap it by do you want to talk a little bit about your book like what motivated you to write it and and um i can definitely recommend it from what i've read i'm sure josh can recommend it but i don't know do you want to do you want to do you want to sell your book at all <laughs> you advertise it at all and kind of what you're trying to do with that book well the title just for that purpose is kayaking with lambs notes from an east tennessee farmer and uh it's based on uh, these observations, these notes that I've been making for about 20 years. And they're fairly short notes, uh, you know, maybe a page, two pages. Uh, 
we're just trying to come to grips with the uh, process of learning to live on the on the land and uh and uh i had i had maybe 350,000 words that i had accumulated in these notes and i started talking with jason peters at the front porch republic and he said well you know if you can get it down to about 60,000 words then maybe maybe we'd have a book and so uh it took a took a year or so to kind of cool that stuff down and revise it and so forth but uh but I'm pleased that it's getting the kind of people that uh, that I wanted to read it are starting to read it and responding well to it. Yeah, great. And uh, that's available from uh, publisher is Front Porch Republic. And you can get it at any of the, you know, if you want to send Jeff Bezos to uh, Mars, you can buy it at Amazon, but you can buy it at bookshop.org, which great. supports independent bookstores. I was I was going to ask if um, if you what like what's next? I mean, do you have another kind of project lined up now that this one is 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 uh, been completed? Or would you, I thought maybe there would be like a sequel that could be like hang gliding with chickens or something like that. Or what <laughs> sort of extreme sport do you plan to do with a with a domestic animal next? <laughs> uh, you know. Actually, I think I've, I'm going to continue to write my blog. I have a blog that comes out every couple of weeks called A South Rhone Agrarian. So I'll continue doing that because I like writing about the farm life. I'm working on a, a book outline uh, that will probably take years to complete, but it's, it's a memoir of a reading life because uh, books are very important to me in my, in my life and in my you know, past career and stuff. So so I want to write something kind of more populous uh, in tone, but uh, that is just about what books have meant. Uh, going back to as a child and reading Harold and the Purple Crayon. So there you go. Hmm. Nice. Well, this is this has been great. Uh, thanks, Josh, for for setting this up, and uh, I look forward to finishing your book. And I recommend everyone else check it out. Well, I appreciate both of you. Thank you.